Would you grab your Bibles? We're going to open up to Mark chapter 9. And while you're turning there, I'm just going to pray. Father, what an honor it is to open your word. What an honor it is, Lord, to to be able to know that we can read these words and, and be confident, Father, that you are speaking. Lord, what an honor it is to study your word in community. And Lord, we just pray this morning that you would lead us and guide us, Father, in your time, or in our time in this word. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful that you do speak and that we can listen. And so, Lord, we have open hearts, open minds this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, usually uh, the kids, my kids, jump right out of the car excited to go to school. They go to school two days a week in Medford at this place called Arrows Academy, which you should check out. Um, It's a pretty legit plug. Um, I don't know if Becky's in here, but she runs it. Okay, yeah, Becky runs it. Anyways, my kids love Arrows. They love going to school. And typically, they jump right out of the car. But one morning, my son, my six-year-old, he didn't want to get out of the car. And I was you know, typical dad, I'm kind of in a hurry, a little bit frantic, a little late. I'm like, come on, buddy, get out of the car. You know, you got to get out of the car. Okay, he gets out of the car. Something was wrong. I didn't take the time at that moment to see what it was. So we walked down the hallway and we <clears throat> stop off to go to the bathroom. And while my daughter was, was going to the bathroom, I, I, I looked down at my son and I just saw a big tear coming down his cheek. And I'm like, buddy, what's wrong? And he goes, he didn't say anything. He just glanced down at his lunchbox. And his lunchbox was purple and pink. His mom, bless her heart, without thinking, really, just couldn't find his lunchbox that morning. So she grabbed one of the girls' lunchbox and threw his food in there and gave it to him, not thinking about it. And this is like the first time I've really really seen my, my son have to wrestle with that, you know? And I'm like, oh, I get it. I'm like, are you embarrassed about your lunchbox? He's like, yeah. He's like, the kids are gonna laugh at me. And I was just, my heart sunk, because I just realized that my son is going to have to deal with the same garbage we all have to deal with. This fear of being rejected, this desire to be accepted, this desire to excel among our peers, this desire to be something in, in, in the, the, the sort of the social system that we're living within, my, my son is going to have to learn to live in that. So um, I, didn't make him, <laughs> I didn't make him use the lunchbox. I said, just dump your food in your bag, dude. We'll be good. And, uh, and I just, man, I remember what that feels like, right? What's my point? My, my point is, <clears throat> by the way, I asked him last night if I could share that story. And he kind of thought about it. He's all, okay. <laughs> I don't ever want to be that pastor. You know, I was like telling, telling all kids those stories. Anyways, you know, the point is that, that so much of our lives are, are ruled by this deep desire to both be accepted and exceptional, aren't they? I mean, so much of our life, we're, we're, we're thinking about how do I stand out or how do I not stand out? How do I work my way up in, in, in whatever um, social system you know, that, I'm, that I'm in? There's seven billion people in the world and, uh, and the question I think we all often ask, wow, you guys awake? All right, I'm never gonna do that again. That was, that was bad. Um, anyways, <laughs> that was planned, actually. That was, that was planned. Um, there's seven billion people in the world, and the, and the question of what makes me special, what makes me matter, what makes me stand out out of those seven billion people is something that we all think about. We all grow up thinking about it. We all wrestle with it. How do I find significance and, and how, how do I know um, what gives me value and self-worth? When we're kids, we often try to find a smaller pool that we can excel in, you know? We will find a small friend group, and then I try to work my way up in the friend group. How can I be accepted by my friends? Maybe we find a sport or something like that, and we ask the question, you know, how can we um, be accepted in the sport uh, that I'm in? How can I find a way to excel in the sport that I'm in? Guys, I'm going to be distracting really quick and grab a different microphone because I think this one sounds terrible. Check. Oh, so much better. Okay. Praise God. Um, <clears throat> adults, we do the same things, don't we? And, and we, the way that we often do this is we, we, we compare ourselves to one another. So like moms, you know what I'm talking about. You know, you, you're, you're, you're wondering, am I a good mother? 
And oftentimes when you're feeling insecure about whether you're a good mother, you look at other mothers and you go, well, at least I don't do that. Or, or at least I don't feed my kids that. Or at least I don't treat my kids like that. Or dads, you know, you're wondering about your own significance or your own um, sense of, 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 um, of self. And, and you, you start looking around. Well, at least I'm not a loser like that guy. At least I'm not lazy like that guy. At least I work harder than that guy. I mean, we all do it. We all do it. Small churches judge big churches so that they feel significant. Big churches judge small churches so they feel significant. Rich people judge poor people for being lazy and lazy people rich or judge rich people for being arrogant and spoiled blue collar judges white collar white collar judges blue collar we're all trying to find a way to stand out we're all trying to find a way to to level up this idea of greatness it's stitched into the dna of our being we all want to be great we all want to be something special we don't want to be mediocre our culture in, in America worships greatness uh, it, it, through fame and fanfare. We live in a weird world where people are literally famous for being famous. Have you noticed that? It's like, what, why is that person? Well, because they're famous. But why are they famous? I don't know. They're, they're famous because they're famous. Um, we live in a world that now through social media, we can feel like we're great because we can create a following and feel like we're the center of that universe at any point in time. We can't just eat our scrambled eggs. We can post our scrambled eggs and feel like we're really amazing, like we have a really amazing life, right? Uh, it's just, it's just this, this ability to, to try to be great is stitched into our culture. We're all experts at creating our own hierarchical system of ladder climbing so that we can climb the ladder with exclusivity and virtue signaling. Every little uh, you know, hierarchical system that we create has its own virtue signaling in it so we can sort of show that we're true to that group. Every false religion has a false gospel prescription for our need for greatness. Okay, let me say that again. Every false religion has a false gospel prescription. Gospel means good news. A false gospel prescription for our deep need for self-esteem. And the world is selling us op- options, different options, different ways that you can feel good and great about yourself. Now, Adam and Eve in the garden, if you remember, at the very beginning of humanity, they had this issue. God had given them this beautiful gift of limits. You remember that? He said, hey, I've, I've, I've given you a sense of greatness and worth. He gave them the cultural mandate. He said, go populate the earth and cultivate it. Um, and I'm going to plant you within the garden. You'll have everything that you need. And what was the original sin of Adam and Eve? It was to reach around God's provision, reach around God's limitations, and say, I want to be greater than God has chosen for me to be. There's more that God has not seen fit to to share with me. So I'm going to reach around God through the fruit, and I'm going to attempt to be more like God. So what they were doing is they were attempting to be greater than God had designed for them to be. They were seeking their own greatness instead of God's greatness. Now, the system of religious culture that Jesus stepped into when he came into this world 2,000 years ago was a hierarchical system that had its own um, baked-in sense of greatness uh, and own baked-in sense of ladder climbing. And the Pharisees were largely, within the, the Jewish system, the Pharisees and the scribes were the ones that built the ladders. Does that make sense? They designed the ladders that everyone else had to climb up, mostly through their own version of virtue signaling, which was, um, hey, if you, if you do this per- certain cleansing, if you sacrifice in this certain way, if you have certain tassels hanging off, if you dress a certain way, if you uh, announce your prayers, announce your tithes in a certain way, then, then you become the highest in the, the, the strata of the system that they largely created. And Jesus really had no interest in affirming their version of greatness, didn't he? Not only did Jesus reject the ladder of the Pharisees, he kicked it down. He wasn't interested in climbing their ladder. He wasn't interested in any of the things that they used as virtue signaling to make themselves look great in the culture. Jesus systematically rejected it. Now, the disciples, here's why this matters, okay? The disciples grew up in this system. Let me read you a quote here. One commentator, he Notes, rabbinic writings frequently comment on the seating order in paradise. For example, and argue that the just would sit nearer to the throne of God than even the angels. 
Earthly orders of seating at worship, meals, or authority within the community or dealings with inferiors and superiors were seen as preparation for the eternal order to come. Let me translate that. That means that where you sit at the dinner table signifies where you will sit in heaven. That's why the scribes liked what? The chief seats. See, they had created their own system of showing that they were greater than others. And the funny thing is, you know, we value humility to some degree in this culture because we have a Christian underpinnings. But this culture, the culture that the disciples lived in, they didn't value humility. They valued pride. And it was all about finding a way to get ahead in their own system. Now, this all matters, so follow me here, okay? The disciples have been following Jesus around. These guys were basically nobodies. They were living in essentially relative obscurity. They were blue-collar, fishermen, tax collectors, really nobody on the grand scheme of things. Then comes along this rabbi who has the ability to heal, raise the dead, do the miraculous, and he seems to be showing all of the traits of the Messiah, Now, in their head, when they think Messiah, they think this militaristic, Davidic, powerful man who's going to come in and and kick Rome out of Jerusalem and set up a new administration. Now, if he's going to set up a new administration, what does that mean for the disciples? It means that they are his cabinet. First thing a president does, right? When a president gets elected, he selects a cabinet. I need a VP, uh, I, I need a, a secretary general, I need a secretary of defense. Uh, he picks all of these people, his, his chief counselors, and the disciples are going, that's us. We are the cabinet. We are the inner circle, the inner sanctum, the, the most important people that Jesus is selected. We went from being obscure to being somebody. And what's their ticket to being somebody? Jesus. But only if he shows up in Jerusalem and takes over, only if he starts to display power. Now, what just happened two weeks ago, Jesus just began to let his glory out. His glory began to burst out of his, uh, of his flesh in such a way that the three, Peter, James, and John, are starting to go, oh, this is what we've been waiting for. This is the kingdom breaking in. Now we're talking, now the power of God is breaking. Like Moses and Sinai, the glory of God is now coming in. Here it comes. And that means that this new militaristic moment is about to come. And the disciples are really concerned about who's going to be the most powerful in this new administration of the Messiah Jesus. Are you with me? This is what they're thinking about. This is what's going through their mind. Now, not to mention, Jesus took three of the guys up the hill and he left nine down. So how are those nine feeling? They're feeling like, well, maybe we're second tier. How are the three feeling? They're feeling like, hey, maybe we're first tier. So that all sets the tone for our text, and we're going to jump in. Now, before I do that, I want to read this quote. We're going to talk about greatness this morning. We're going to talk about what greatness is because Jesus is going to help us understand what true greatness is, and hopefully we're going to walk away with a better understanding of this. Uh, One commentator, Edwards, James Edwards, he says, At no point does the way of Jesus diverge more sharply from the way of the world than on the question of greatness. You cannot overstate how different what Jesus is about to say is from what the world at large believed. So let's dive right in. Mark chapter 9, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know. Now, this is a turning point in the ministry of Christ. Jesus is, for two years now, he's been ministering in the Galilee, which is the northern part of Israel, uh, largely surrounding the Sea of Galilee in cities like Capernaum and Bethsaida. And he's been doing miracle after miracle in these cities. And these cities have systematically rejected Jesus as the Messiah. He pronounces woe in one of the other gospels. He pronounced woes on these cities. He said, hey, if they're not going to believe me after all the miracles I've done, then they're never going to believe me. Uh, It would be better for me to go to Sodom and Gomorrah than to go to these cities. So Jesus is done with the Galilean period of ministry. He's moving on. He's turned his sights from Galilee. Now he's moving to what we call the Judean period of his ministry, which is Jerusalem. His sights are headed towards Jerusalem. And this is another reason the disciples think things are starting to get interesting. He's moving. They know from their Bibles that it's all going to go down in Jerusalem. They know that's going to be the place that this new Messiah is going to set up his new administration. So they're like, here we go. It's time. It's happening. It's breaking in. Now, verse 31, for he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. 
And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus has done this before. What he does is he pulls his guys aside and he says, I need to share something with you. I need to share where this is all going to go. And it's not going to go where you think it's going to go. It's going to me being murdered. He says, I'm going to be murdered. He doesn't say anything about the cross, but he does say, I'm going to be murdered. I'm going to be murdered by the religious elite. I'm going to be murdered by the Sanhedrin, the, the scribes, the elders, the chief priests, the Sadducees. They're going to kill me. And then after three days, don't worry, I'll resurrect. So Jesus is telling his guys this, and they're like, uh-huh, yeah, no idea what you're talking about. Anyways, so back to what we were saying. This is basically what they're doing. I mean, Jesus keeps putting this before them, trying to prepare them for the cross, and they're completely blind to it. By choice, by the way. They're completely blind to it. They don't want to see the cross. They don't have a theological framework for the cross. Their idea of Messiah is largely militaristic. So the idea of a suffering servant, even though it's in Isaiah 53, they completely missed it. They're completely blind to it. Now, this is the second of three times Jesus shares what is called the passion predictions. It is the prediction of his passion. Uh, passion means his, his crucifixion. The first time Jesus did it, remember, it was a few weeks ago. What did Peter do? He pulled him aside, and he rebuked Jesus for saying he was going to the cross. Don't ever do that. We talked about that, right? And in a few weeks, Jesus is going to share his passion prediction again, and immediately following, James and John, the sons of thunder, are going to ask him who gets to sit on his right and on his left, completely missing the point. And today, we're going to see that again. We're going to see Jesus share the cross, and the disciples completely miss it. You know, we have a gift for tuning out, for tuning out what we don't want to hear, don't we? My kids, they have this thing called selective hearing. Hey, you guys want to go uh, get ice cream? Yeah. Hey, can you guys clean your room and your bedroom chores? Hey, can you clean? Yeah. Oh, I didn't hear you. Oh, really? You didn't hear? It's selective hearing, right? The disciples have selective hearing. They, they're choosing not to, to connect this idea because they don't like the idea of Jesus going to be murdered. So instead of pondering this prediction, uh, they ponder what? Uh, they ponder something else. They ponder who's going to be the greatest. Listen, verse 33, they came to Capernaum, and when, he's, when he was in the house, he asked them, hey, what were you guys discussing on the way? You know, Jesus walked everywhere with his guys. They didn't have cars, right? So they walked, and, and they would walk probably in clumps, and, and perhaps Jesus was up ahead talking to some of the other disciples, or perhaps he was praying. And, and some of the guys, we don't know which ones. I got a pretty good guess, but uh, some of the guys were in the back of the caravan, and they're, they're arguing about something, Right? So when they get to the house, Jesus says, hey, what have you guys been talking about? What have you been arguing about? And I love 34. It's like the teenage answer. Like, hey, what, you know, where were you? Why'd you come in late last night? They're like, oh, why'd you do that? Oh, what were you doing? Stuff. That's basically what the disciples do. They kept silent. They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. They know what they're talking about is ridiculous because they know they're back. They're arguing about who's going to be the most powerful. After Jesus just got done saying he's going to the cross, they're ridiculous. They're arguing about greatness. They're feeling um, sort of insecure at this point. The nine tried to cast out a demon. They couldn't. The three got to go up on the hill. So the nine are probably judging the three, and the three are probably judging the nine, and they're comparing. And then Peter, James, and John are going, well, which one of us are going to be his right-hand guy? And Peter's going, well, I'm the, obviously the leader. And they're like, yeah, but you're an idiot. You told Jesus not to go to the cross, and he called you Satan, right? So they're arguing about this. They're all over the place. They, they can't decide who's going to be the greatest. Now, remember, these are not 50-year-old men. These are like 27-year-old or 25-year-old or 30-year-old men. Testosterone is going. Compare, they're comparing to one another. Who's going to be the greatest? Who's going to be the most powerful? So Jesus sits down. That's what rabbis would do. They would stand to read the scripture, and then they would sit to teach and sit to discuss, and it was a position of, of authority. So Jesus sits down, and he's, he says, I need to talk to you guys about the way that you're thinking about greatness, the way that you're measuring yourself according to the metrics of your culture. So he sits down in verse 35. He calls the 12, and he said to them, if any would be first, he must be last of all, the servant 
of all. Okay, now I know for you guys, maybe that's common language. Yeah, that's a very common Jesus-y thing to say. Um, but nobody said things like that until Jesus. This idea that the first would be last, we see it in the Sermon on the Mount as well, it's completely counterintuitive. And I can't overstate just how counterintuitive it would have been to these guys. Jesus says, hey, you want to be great? Sweet. I'll tell you how to be great. And notice, by the way, he doesn't say not to try to be great. You notice that? He doesn't say greatness is bad. He doesn't say greatness is evil. He doesn't say it's, it's wrong for you to want to be somebody. Because it's actually not. God actually made you that way. God made you to want to be something, do something important, do something valuable, be a contributor to the world. God made you to want to be great. So Jesus doesn't rebuke their greatness. Listen, he reorients their greatness. He says, no, no, I need to redefine for you what true greatness actually is. Because the way that you've thought about it is incorrect. So he says, here's what greatness is. Let me tell you what greatness is. He says, greatness is being a servant to all. This word servant, it's diakonos. It was a common word in the Greek world. Remember, this is, this is Palestine, but it has been saturated by Greco-Roman culture. And in the Greek language, diakonos was the common word for a table waiter. Okay, this isn't doulos, this isn't slave, this isn't bond servant, this is diakonos, this is, this is a table waiter. Okay, this is somebody who's working minimum wage. This is somebody who would have been looked down on by Greek culture. Plato said, how can a man be happy when he has to serve someone? This was Greek thinking. Manual labor is really the worst of all labor. If you're affluent and you're rich, you hire someone else to do that. And Jesus is saying the greatest actually are those who are willing to be diakonos. This is the word you might be familiar with it. We use it for the word deacons. Remember Stephen and, and Philip were the diakonos in, in Acts chapter 6, um, later became deacons, right? So it's just a servant, and it's not a slave, it's a willing servant. He's saying you got to choose to serve. That's what greatness really is. In Jesus' economy, greatness is gauged by serenity, not sovereignty. Are you with me? By humility, not grandiosity. In Jesus' economy, it's how much are you willing to give away, not how much are you looking to receive. And this is completely backwards from what the disciples are thinking about when it comes to Jesus. They're not thinking, how much can I give away for Jesus? They're thinking, how much can I get from Jesus? He's our ticket to be someone. He's our ticket to do something special. By the way, how do you know if you're a servant? How do you know? I love this old saying, it's, if you ever want to know if you're a servant, see what you do when someone treats you like one. Have you ever had someone disrespectfully treat you like a servant? How do you, how do you handle it? I remember one time I was at a pastor's conference, and, and someone I would consider a peer shot out an order to me to go do something, and I could tell that it was like he thought he was the superior in my life. And I, and I, and I had that phrase go through my head. I was like, who do you think? Oh, I am not a servant. And so I just kind of went and did it. And I, just, I always remember that. You know, if you want to know if you're a servant, what happens when someone treats you like a servant? So these guys, they're not servants. And Jesus knows that. And that's why he's bringing this up. He's like, it's great that you guys want to be great. But let me tell you what greatness really is. Greatness is becoming a servant. Now, Jesus knows that this one little statement is not penetrating his audience. So he does what a good teacher does. He looks around for an illustration. Jesus was a good, he was the best teacher, wasn't he? And he looks around, and there happens to be a kid. So he's done this before. He, he grabs a kid, and he, he, he scoops him up. And he says, I'm going to use this kid as an illustration. Verse 36, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. He actually set him right there, okay? Taking him in his arms, then he picks him up. He said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but who, him who sent me. So here's the illustration. Now, don't get this confused with the other times Jesus picked up kids. The point here is not to have childlike faith. That's a different illustration at a different time. Jesus, at another point, picks up a child and says, you need to have faith like this kid. That's not what he's saying here. He's not saying to have childlike faith. Listen, he's saying to have a childlike station. He's saying that you need to be as unimportant as a child. 
Now, I need to explain a little bit about the culture here because we're very child-centric. Unless they're unborn, then we kill them. But for the most part in our culture, we're very child-centric. Um, so in this culture, children were not valuable. They were only valuable for what they would accomplish once they grew up. They were like a 401k. At one point, my kids will grow up, and then they'll take care of me. Then they'll be valuable. But really, kids were pretty low in the, the pecking order. In fact, they were the lowest level of this in the socioeconomic strata of the day. So Jesus literally scoops up the least important person in the culture, and he says, you need to be like this. That's what he gets at. One commentator notes, he says, we're mistaken if we imagine that Greek and Jewish society extolled the virtues of childhood as do modern societies in general. Societies with high infant mortality rates and great demand for human labor cannot afford to be sentimental about infants and youth. In Judaism, children and women were largely auxiliary members of society whose connection to the social mainstream depended on men, either as fathers or husbands. Children in particular were thought of as not having arrived. They were good illustrations of the very least. So what's Jesus' point? Jesus' point is he's saying this, this kid has, not only does he have no rights, he has nothing to give you. He has nothing to offer you. He can't help you work your way up the ladder. He can't work, help you work your way up the, the pecking order. That's why James talks about in, in his epistle, he says, true religion is to love the widows and the orphans. Why? Because they can't give anything back to you. You're not getting some kind of recognition from that. They can't help you. They can't move you forward. They can't, you know, help your campaign. They can't contribute. They can't repay you. They're just simply a way for you to show your love for God. And so Jesus is saying this kid is an example of what greatness is. Now, notice it, though. Don't miss it. He doesn't say be like this kid. He says what? Receive this kid. And that's important because Jesus is not saying that you need to um, be self-depreciating or self-deprecating. Jesus is saying you need to be self-separating. Let me say that again. The goal is not self-depreciation. It's not self-deprecation. Oh, I'm terrible. I need to be terrible. I need to be a horrible person. I need to be unvaluable. I hate myself. That's just pride in another rapper. He says it's self-separation. You ever heard this saying, uh, you know, that, that um, where is it? Um, being selfless is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking about yourself less. Sometimes we think humility is just beating ourselves up. Jesus isn't saying, hey, go be a loser. He's saying, if you can't receive a child like this who can't repay you, then you're not great. He's providing a new metric, a new way, a new system. Um, you know, kingdom economics, the kingdom is where Jesus is from. And when he comes and where his people exist, the kingdom begins to break in. It's countercultural. And there's different economics in Jesus' kingdom. And these guys are so saturated in the, the thinking of this world, the kingdom of this world, they completely, they just misunderstand what greatness is. And just, Jesus is just trying to break into their minds a little bit. He's trying to help them think biblically about what true greatness is. You know, I just a side note here. We, we think, or I should say our Western culture thinks that we value children and we value poor people and we value, because we've become so enlightened. But you know who the first person was to value every human being? It was Christ. Do you know where this, this thinking of we should value kids, we should value people that have uh, mental illness, we should value elderly, we should value people that can't contribute to society? you know where that thinking came from? It came from Christ. Jesus was the first to break into the misogynistic, patriarchal, hierarchical, uh, hierarchical norms of history, of history. He was the first one to bring this thinking. Jesus picks up this kid and says something no one has ever said. This kid matters. He's valuable, which is why Christians today are still championing the life of the unborn. Unborn children have value. Even though our culture says, no, they're just something that's going to get in the way of your career, Christians say, because our Lord said, no, these unborn babies have value. Amen? They have value because God has given them value because they're made in the image of God. So we get our ethics from Christ. Don't let modern culture try to tell you that, that, that science has given us this thinking. Now, verse 38, the story continues. John comes up to Jesus and said to him, Teacher, 
We saw someone casting out demons in your name. And we tried to stop him because he was not following us. And notice he doesn't say not following you. He says not following us. I don't think anybody should be following the disciples at this point, right? They're, they're really not followable at this point. Now, John comes up to Jesus. He's really concerned. He says, hey, Rabbi, you know, we were out walking around, and we saw some guy, and he had your logo on his car, the Jesus logo, and he was doing ministry. Who does he think he is? I mean, we bought into this franchise first. We're on the ground level. There's no more market share here, right? How dare he? So we tried to get him to stop, but he wouldn't stop. So what do you think we should do? And they're just like waiting for Jesus to be like, yeah, my brand. I'm super worried about the Jesus brand. We got to keep it pure. Like somebody put a McDonald's down the block, right? And it's like, hey, I own this block. These guys, this guy's, this guy's breaking into their space, right? They are the 12. They are the cabinet. They are the great. They are the elite. They are the, the included. They are those who are the counselors of Christ. They bought into the franchise first. Just back off, buddy. And so they, they really have a hard time with this guy. They really have a hard time. And, and, and Jesus doesn't seem to have a hard time with it. In fact, Jesus is kind of probably chuckling to himself because he, he knows, he, he read ahead. <laughs> he, he read the book of Acts before it was written. Um, and he knows that this crazy thing's going to happen where actually the gospel and the power of Jesus is going to break into this world through thousands of humans. Not just 12 powerful men. Man, we don't, we don't believe that the apostles were the only... No, the, the Holy Spirit was going to allow the power of the gospel to break into this world through thousands and thousands of Christians that would be dispersed because of persecution all across the ancient world, all the way to Grants Pass, Oregon, which is the ends of the earth, by the way. So how funny is it that this, this, John has this real concern about this guy being a, a useful um, you know, mechanism for the, the fame and the name of Jesus, and Jesus is just like, boy, you just wait, buddy. Peter, you're going to preach a sermon, and thousands are going to get saved, and they're going to spread the gospel all over the place. So Jesus is not concerned about this. He's not concerned about this. You know, what we do oftentimes, I think this is what's happening here. If we can't, if we can't feel like the greatest, what do we do? We make other people feel like less. Anytime I, I find myself talking negatively about people, it's usually because I'm feeling insecure. I catch myself doing it all the time. Well, those guys, this, this, this. Well, those guys are just blah, blah, blah. And it's really, it's just insecurity. These guys are feeling insecure. They're, they're, they want to be the only ones that get access to this power. Now, maybe they were concerned for the fame of Jesus. I don't know. It's hard to say. But it seems clear that Jesus is like, hey, no, you got something. Something's out of, out of whack here, John. Something's out of whack. When we feel insecure about our place, we often feel the need to try to define ourselves by what we aren't rather than who we are. I got this email the other day. It was just, this, these emails make me laugh. Um, I got an email from somebody, and they were like, hey, I just spent some few minutes on your website, and uh, I'm just confused. I mean, why do we need another church in Grants Pass? I mean, I've, I've looked at your website, and you guys are basically just like every other church out there. So what's the point? I don't get it. Help me understand it. What am I missing? <laughs> and I just, like, oh, do I really want to spend 30 minutes responding to this? Okay, I'll do it. So... So I, I, I sat and I said, you know what? Here's the problem. You're thinking about church all wrong. We're not trying to be different. This isn't a market share. We're not trying to franchise. We're not trying to be, oh, well, we can't be like Dutch bros. We can't be like human beings. Let's start a coffee shop where we stand on our head. And that'll be new, right? Hey, you want to order coffee? We're the coffee shop where you stand on your head. Like, no, that's not the point. The point isn't being different. The point is being faithful. And so I just told this guy, I'm like, hey, we're not trying to be different than any other church. We're trying to be faithful. We love these churches in this city. In fact, they told me to come here. They said, you should come plant more churches. Why? Because there's 33,000 people going to hell in Grants Pass. Did you know that? That's why we're here. We're not here to be another flavor on the menu for Christians. We're here to reach the lost. We're here to make disciples, right? That's the point. Now, why am I bringing this up? Because as soon as I got that email, my tendency was to go, oh, maybe I need to tell this guy why we're better and different. Well, you see, we're the church that drinks real alcohol for wine, you know? Like, no, what, what am I going to say? You know, like, oh, well, we're the church that gives $100 bills to all of our people. That's why we're special, you know? Like, no, we don't do that, by the way. Just see. So, it's the other way around, you know? Um, just kidding. But seriously, um, 
When, when, we feel, when we feel like we're not important, that's when we start to go, well, what makes me special? What makes me different than others? And that's exactly what these guys are doing here. They're feeling threatened. And so they're looking to, to shut out anyone else that might be getting in on their, their market share. Now look at Jesus' response. Jesus said, do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. Okay, what Jesus is basically getting at here is he, he, he's going, look, this, this guy is taking a great risk. He, you know, Jesus had more enemies than friends at this point. It wasn't necessarily socially popular to, to go out and, and be preaching in Jesus' name. So, so the fact that this guy has chosen to, to go out and do this in his name, Jesus is like, he's not going to turn around and call, he's not going to turn around and switch jerseys all of a sudden. Okay, so Jesus is like, calm down. Don't worry about it. It's not as big a deal as you think. A house divided cannot stand. Now, you might be saying, well, aren't we supposed to call out false teachers? Yes. But clearly, Jesus doesn't see this as a false teacher. And clearly, Jesus sees the real toxic issue is this misguided desire for greatness in the hearts of the disciples, which, by the way, lives within the hearts of us. That's the real issue at hand. And Jesus goes on, For truly I say to you, 41, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Now, Jesus masterfully takes it right to the same place he took his last illustration. Guys, you don't understand. It's not about who's doing the most. It's about who is doing it the most true and who's doing it for the Father. That's the point. Even a glass of water, if done for Christ, is valuable. This is what the Apostle Paul was trying to tell the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. He's like, these guys were so impressed with themselves because they could speak with the tongues of angels and they could prophesy and they could do all of this charismatic stuff. And, and Paul's like, that's great. But I would rather that you love each other, which they were not doing. They were pigging out at the communion table and not leaving any food for anybody else, right? I mean, you know, Paul's like, look, you, you've got a completely backwards idea of what's great in the kingdom of God. Somebody who gives a cup of water to a disciple for the name of Jesus is greater than someone who does some great miraculous feat. Now, by the way, there's a little bit of humor built in here, I think, because this guy that John's so worried about, he just did what the disciples couldn't do last week, remember? They couldn't cast out the demon, and here's this guy, and he's doing it. It's kind of a problem for these guys. Now, that's our passage. Hopefully we've taken a good look at it. Now let's step back from it and let's ask the question, so what? So what? So we've, we've seen Jesus intermingle you know, uh, with these guys' definition of greatness. What are we supposed to do with that? I think that the key to this passage is actually at the beginning of it. The key to this passage is actually the first thing that Jesus said. See, Jesus didn't just help these guys think differently about greatness. Jesus embodied what true greatness looks like. Jesus didn't just help these guys think about what a servant is. He became the ultimate servant. That's why he shares the cross. He says, guys, you need to understand the cross is not only this thing I have to do theologically in order to atone for your sin, in order to overcome sin and death. He says, the cross is going to be the picture of what it looks like to follow me. The cross is the ultimate act of servanthood. As one commentator says, the spirit of service is the passport to eminence in the kingdom of God, for it is the spirit of the master who himself became diakonos panton, that is, servant of all. Jesus was the ultimate servant, and he displayed that servanthood. He displayed his diakonos on the cross, that he would willingly become a servant to his bride to redeem her for the Father. Isn't that incredible? Jesus didn't just live the servant life. He lived the servant death. It's a beautiful reality. We have the perfect example of servanthood on the cross. And how did Jesus go to the cross? How did Jesus become the diaconos of all diaconos, the servant of all servants? He did it for the reward that was on the other side. He did it for the Father. And that's why in our text, Jesus is trying to get these guys to see you need to do it for the Father, not for your own greatness, but for the Father. Now, lest I burden you with this feeling of now I need to go out and be a really good servant, let me remind you of something theologically. You can't be. 
When did, let me ask you a question. When did the disciples get it? When did they get it? Was it when Jesus washed their feet? And he was like, hey, do this to each other. I don't think they got it then. Was it this moment here where Jesus teaches them? Is that where they learned to be servants? When did they get it? They got it the moment the Spirit of God punctured into this world at the day of Pentecost. The Spirit of God empowered the church, filled the church, and through regeneration and through the filling of the Spirit of God, what did they do? They all sold everything they had to serve one another. And who did they serve primarily? The least in the community. That's why within a matter of days, they have to assign diaconos to help with the waiting of the tables because the widows and the orphans and those in the church that were being served uh, needed to be served, but the pastors still needed to preach and teach and pray. The Spirit of God manifests itself in radical servanthood. That's why one of the most beautiful signs of fruit at this church is not a size of it. It's not the size of the growth. It's not what's happening up here. It's when you guys love each other in radical ways and I get to see it. And you guys do an incredible job. Not because you're awesome, but because of the Spirit of God, the diaconos of Christ, the Spirit of Christ is within you. Every time you serve one another, every time you love one another, the Spirit of Christ is serving through you. Isn't that great? So what do we do? We do what Jesus said to do in John 15. We abide. You're just the branch. He's the servant. He is the diaconos. He's the servant of all servants. We are to abide in him. And when we abide in him, his fruit comes out of us by the Spirit of God. It's an incredible reality. Now, let me try to get practical. I want to really encourage you guys, and I want to really help you. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to help you. I'm going to, t- I'm going to tell you how you can really be not great. Are you excited? I'm going to give you five ways to make yourself feel exceptional and remain completely unexceptional. Are you excited? Okay. So if that's your goal in life, I want to be very, very unexceptional, but I want to feel good about myself. I'm going to tell you how to do that. I'll give you five ways to do it, okay? The first way is you need to believe the false gospel of incorporation greatness. Believe the false gospel of incorporation. If you want to feel good about yourself, if you're not feeling very special, if you're not feeling great, one of the ways that you can feel good about yourself is do what a lot of us do, and that is feel good about what you're part of. You may not be great, but what you're part of is great. You're incorporated into something. Um, I, I, I always catch myself doing this. I feel, if I'm feeling insecure, I start name dropping. You ever do that? That's incorporation greatness. Well, yeah, you know, uh, who was the guy? Was like Kyle Singler or something like that? Remember that guy? He was like, he's like pro basketball. Nobody really knew him. But then he got famous and everyone was like, oh, yeah, Kyle, man. We were friends in high school. It's like, no, you weren't. You're just trying to be great through his greatness. That's what you're trying to do. What we do as humans oftentimes is we say, I don't feel great. I don't feel special. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to incorporate myself with something that feels great. And then, uh, and then I will, by proxy, feel great. Incorporation greatness says, I'm in the club. Uh, and I don't mean like the club. I mean like I'm in, I'm in a club. Um, I don't know what I meant by that. Uh, I, I'm at the cool church. I'm, I'm at part of the elite thing. I'm in the group with the other special people, right? I'm special because of who I know and who knows me. And I'm special because of who I am and who I'm like and, and, and who, who's like me, right? A lot of us do this in high school with our friends, right? I want to feel good, so I'm going to latch on to people that I think are important. Now, the problem with this is that you're borrowing significance from people that actually aren't significant, and that's a problem. The problem with this is that you end up developing a very judgmental view of of who you are because you're in the group and everyone's not in the group. You end up with an inbred homogeny and an echo chamber of backscratching. In this group, you're seeking only the approval of your tribe and anyone outside. doesn't really matter to you. So that's the first way, if you want to feel great, but not be great. Uh, The second way, if you want to feel great and not be great, is achievement greatness. Run after achievement greatness. Achievement greatness is, uh, it says, I'm special because of what I can do. So when you're feeling insecure and you're not feeling important, just remember what you can do really well. 
Many of us like have at least one thing we can do well, right? Like I can make a mean ham sandwich, right? So like that's my thing, you know? Like no, what, what, whatever it is. I mean, maybe it's your vocation, maybe it's your job, maybe maybe it's a, a particular gift, uh, a particular hobby that you're into. But just find something like that and really make yourself like pour yourself completely into it and be so obsessed with it that you begin to push your family to the side. And you say, sorry, like this is what makes me great, and you get in the way. You know, your wife, I know you want time with me, but you're, you're getting in the way of my thing. And, and people do that, right? That's, that's if you want to feel great about yourself, just, just do that. Um, another way is to um, believe the false gospel of enlightenment greatness. This is where you feel really good about yourself because of what you know. You, and the great thing about this one, guys, let me sell you on this one, you don't have to do anything. You just have to know things. And you feel really great. Like, I, I, I have the knowledge Oh, you guys listen to you guys all listen to the mainstream media. Well, I have the secret news. I have the secret knowledge about COVID. Uh, you want to you want to know about it? Oh yeah, yeah. Let me tell you what's really going on. Okay, yeah. You have your Bible, but I have this one translation that you've never heard of, and there's certain words in there. Um, you know, it, it, it's just a great way to feel like you're great. It's awesome. Um, and the best part is you don't have to do anything. You just know, and and you can always tell these people because they love to talk, because that's what makes them great is to share all their great secret knowledge, right, with people. And so they're always talking. Here's another way to be great. Um, Believe the false gospel of abstinence greatness. And that means that, like, what makes me great isn't what I do, it's what I don't do. I'm not the guy with the needle in his arm. I'm not the guy who cheated on his wife. I'm not the guy who cheated on his taxes. I'm, I'm not like these guys. I'm not like these people. That'll make you feel great for a minute, right? And here's the really slippery one. I call this one rebellious greatness. That's where you feel great because you don't care about feeling great, right? That's the secret one, right? Like, so some of you are like, yeah, whatever, Sam. I don't fall into any of those categories. I don't care what people think about me. You're, you're falling in that, that trap, see? What makes you great is that you don't care about being great. Okay, I'm being ridiculous this morning, I know. But I just was thinking this week, like, this is, this is all the stupid stuff I do all week long. I have these moments of insecurity. I have these moments where I don't feel important enough and I reach for one of these stupid false gospels, little g. I go, well, maybe, maybe, maybe I need to be reminded of who I'm associated with. You people, of course, which are amazing. Uh, maybe I need to be reminded of what I've done, my achievements, you know? You know, like you bump into someone that doesn't know you and you feel the need to let them know all the things you've done because they don't know that you've done those things. You know, or, or, or maybe, maybe I, I, just, I just need to tell somebody something that they don't know because I feel really good about myself when I know something people don't know. I just reach for these. They're false false gospels. They're they're weak, thin gospels that don't root me in significance. They don't make me feel great. They just make me feel good for a second. And then I need more and more and more. And this is what the disciples are doing here, you see? Jesus looks at these guys. He just sees a bunch of young, insecure men that he loves so much. And he sees them just floundering like like someone drowning, just reaching for anything to make themselves feel special. Well, look what I can do, and look what I've done, and look who I'm with, and look what I know, and look what I think, and, and look what I wear, and look, and I belong to these people, and they're just floundering for significance, and Jesus is just like, none of that matters at all. Are you willing to let go of it? There's this moment where Jesus is uh, approached by this young man who was very great. Remember this guy? He was the rich, young ruler. He had everything. He was charismatic. He had the money. He had the looks. He had the status. He had it all. And Jesus says, you want to be really great? Sell everything you have and come get me instead. And what does he say? He walks away sorrowful because he loved his greatness more than he loved the greatness of Christ. Jesus is trying to loosen the death grip of these 12 testosterone-driven, insecure men just like me that want to be something. And he's saying, no, you don't really want that. You want me. I'm better he would say. He said that, that he would say that longing for incorporation, you're longing for incorporation into the body of Christ. You're longing for the incorporation into all of the eternal riches of what is yours in Christ. That's what you want. That longing to, to really have some achievements to think back about. He said what you're longing for is my achievements, the achievements of Christ that's imputed to you when you believe in Jesus, his perfect life. What we need is the gospel. We need to be rooted and grounded in the reality of the gospel, who we are in Christ. True greatness is not about our greatness. It's about his greatness. It might seem obvious, 
But I just want to encourage you guys just really practically. What is the little gospel that you reach for this week? When you're feeling insignificant. Some of you guys are coming into an age of retirement where, uh, you know, people used to ask you to do things. used to be important. And now you don't have anything to do. What do you reach for? You know, some of you guys uh, had an idea about who you would be when you turned 50, and you turned 50, and you're not that. What do you reach for when you're at a dinner table with people you don't know, and they ask you what you do, and you're embarrassed? What do you reach for? And some of you guys are, are dealing with chronic illness, where you can't do the things you used to do. You used to run marathons. You used to be in shape, and now you're overweight or whatever. What do you reach for when people ask you about things? What do you do? What do you look for to feel important? What do you look for to feel significant? Well, I used to be this, and I used to be that like Uncle Rico on Napoleon Dynamite. Remember that guy? Yeah, don't be that guy, right? Um, half of you are like, what is that reference? I don't have a clue. Like, what do you reach for? I want you guys to tune in this week to what is the false gospel that you look for when you're feeling like you're insignificant. And then I want you to stop. And I want you to read Ephesians chapter 1. And I want you to swim in the eternal significance of the glory and greatness of Christ that is yours now if you choose to remember it and be satisfied in the greatness of Christ and the superiority of Christ over the thin, pointless greatness that you think you might have in this world. Can you do that? I'll be praying for you that this week that you can do that and that I can do that. If I could go back to that moment with my son where he was weeping over his lunchbox, I would do the same thing, except I would do one more thing. I would say, buddy, don't worry. We're going to we'll dump your food in the backpack. And I would have got on my knees, and I would have said, but hey, buddy, you know what? Your friends liking you will never be enough. You need more. Buddy, I spent my whole life chasing people liking me and being great and having significance. And you know what? It never is enough. Just love Jesus. He's enough, buddy. I wish I would have done that. <laughs> I wish. That's what we need to do to ourselves every day. Talk to your inner six-year-old who's insecure about your lunchbox. You need to have a chat this week <laughs> with your inner six-year-old who has a purple lunchbox. <laughs> Father, thank you so much for the word. It's so relevant to us. You know, we can just see these guys, these disciples, and just kind of laugh at them for arguing about who's the greatest. But, but Lord, when we're honest, man, we just see ourselves. And I'm so thankful, Jesus, for how patient you were with those men because it reminds me of how patient you are with me. Jesus, you didn't beat them upside the head. You didn't, you didn't tell them they were idiots. You just graciously reoriented their affections onto the superior riches of the Father and obedience to you, Jesus. I pray that we would be a people that are satisfied in who we are in you so that even if our bodies fail, even if our vocations fail, even if our friendships fail, that we would stand on the eternal riches of Jesus that cannot be taken. We are sealed by the Spirit of God today. Lord, help us this week to believe the gospel every second, every day, every moment. Lord, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.